from Real FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 28, recorded October 4th, 2022. I remain your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and I am joined as almost always, except last time because she was under the weather, by Julia Alexander, our director of strategy. Hi, Julia. Welcome back. Glad you're feeling better. Hey, thank you. I'm also glad I'm feeling better. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was a that was sort of a last minute thing. And we got Steven Schapansky to come in and do some Sports Corner. People said nice things about that. Thank you again to Steven, our editor. Love Sports Corner. Normally, he's silently editing after we record, but he was suddenly present in the show. Uh, we, we had a lot of sports and Steven cares about sports. And he added some nice Canadian angles, which were nice. And we have a letter, hopefully later, that is a, sort of our Canadian update segment which is which is going to be great um but uh i also want to point out it's basically the year anniversary of doing downstream this episode whoa yep yep we started uh we started on october 6th last year so it's this week last year and uh here we are again that's crazy time just keeps ticking away well, happy uh, anniversary. Happy anniversary to you, too. And to th- and thank you to everybody out there who's been with us along the way. Um, I, wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to start, as so, as so often happens, uh, with a, a correction. <laughs> uh, I got, I, I have not used the NFL Plus service and I described it wrong. So I, although I was a Sunday ticket subscriber for a long time, I have not tried NFL Plus. And so I got what it is wrong. And I think it's an important point. And several people pointed it out. Thank you. Um, what's interesting about it, because I, I, I talked a little bit last time about, like, doesn't NFL Plus devalue Sunday ticket? And when you're supposedly auctioning it off and Apple and Amazon are interested, and why wouldn't you just roll that into NFL Plus? And here's here's the answer, which is NFL Plus, in addition to it being limited to mobile devices and not available on laptops or uh, set-top boxes, what it shows you is what you would see in your local area based on what's on local broadcast channels, as well as mm-hmm. the national cable and streaming games. So what you get is whatever's on your local channels, which means it's a great cord cutter service if you're a fan of your local team. What you don't get is all the other games that are not in your market. That is exclusive to Sunday Ticket. Now, we could still have a conversation about uh, that it's sliced this way. Um, and that, But, you know, it's an interesting way to slice it where the NFL is saying, look, if all you are is a, a fan of your home team and you're a cord cutter, that's our product. That's NFL Plus. Right. If you want to see if you're a, home, a fan of a, uh, a remote team or a fan of all teams like Rob Lowe wearing that NFL hat at the Super Bowl that time. I am a fan of all the, the entire league, uh, which nobody believed. Uh, somebody handed him that hat. <laughs> and anyway, then that's Sunday ticket. That's the that's the product you want for that. And you get everything. Plus, they, they have their own red zone channel, in fact, which I'm wondering if that will continue or not. Um, so that's the deal with uh, NFL Plus. It's a cord cutting product that's only on your phones and tablets, uh, but it, it it is tied to your local region. So if you're in New York, you're going to see the Giants and the Jets probably, and that's it. Unfortunately. You're not going to get to see the Saints. Sorry. It's yeah, you know. Well, here's the thing, Jason, is that sports rights and sports just <laughs> sports linear and streaming media in general is always so confusing that I'm just I I it's the only thing that I like quadruple check it is where i'm like is this a thing is yeah this? and i still get it wrong i still get it wrong because the there's time. so many asterisks yeah about like yeah. oh except here and except they're like there was a 
uh, <clears throat> I'll throw it in here. It's another little sports corner follow up thing, which is we were talking about people upset about Apple, um, not uh, about Apple showing the Friday night baseball with Aaron Judge trying to hit his 60th home run. And people were like, oh, how dare they? We have to pay for this, which they didn't. It was free. Uh, and it should be on cable, which you do have to pay for. And uh, and that was weird. Uh, but Amazon bought, as we discussed here uh, in a previous episode, Amazon bought the local broadcast TV right package for the Yankees and put yeah. it on Prime Video, asterisk, but only in the New York area. Yeah, because it's a local broadcast package. Very weird set of rights, but they bought them. And uh, so that's strange. But they did put uh, put that. I don't know whether they simulcasted it or moved it, but they put that game on the Yes Network that they had. That was while Aaron Judge was trying to hit his 61st home run, I think is I think it was after number 60. So um, a, a funny little quirk. You talk about quirks. That's my favorite weird streaming quirk right now is the local local streaming rights for uh, one team on Amazon. Like what? But that's what it is. That's that's what was available. Right. And they bought it. And so it's it's like what you would never carve that package out. It was specifically packaged out to put on a local broadcast channel. And then Amazon outbid them for it. Can I can I just say the Yes Network being its own special um, hell to navigate if you are a cable subscriber mm. still or cord cutter. Either either way, um, it is its own precious thing to navigate. It has been increasingly inter- um, fun, I should say, to watch. Like I was watching college football on Saturday and yes, it was ESPN. Whoever was carrying it kept cutting away to be like, oh, is Aaron Judge finally oh going to hit his home run? And then they just throw it. They walk him because they're like, we're not going to we don't want to be the pitchers that give him his home run. And so it's very fun to watch everyone in sports media get increasingly flustered, but increasingly yeah. excited about this thing potentially happening that it's now interfering with all the other So sports. I was reading. I, I actually think this is a good angle for us because I was reading a piece by a college football writer who was complaining mm-hmm. about the, those cutaways and saying we're watching this to watch college football not baseball we're not you know we're not necessarily baseball fans we don't necessarily care about what's happening in other sports and the, this person's point was we now live in a universe where if you care about it there is a place to go to see it and and ESPN making the decision to cut in to their college football broadcast to show this thing that's happening when they probably they could put it on ESPN News or they could put it on or it's on MLB Network or whatever is I would argue kind of a relic of it's like old thinking. It's the idea that, well, people just leave it tuned to ESPN, I guess, and it's the only source they've got. And so we're going to have to show this here. And we don't live in that world anymore. Like there's somewhere else you can probably go to see Aaron Judge's at bats if you want to. I I would actually be okay with putting up an alert saying, oh, Aaron Judge uh, at bat is now on wherever ESPN plus ESPN three MLB network, you know, do make your choice. But uh, I think that's, I think, I think they got a good point. I mean, part of it is like, yes. Oh, you're such a fragile flower as a college football fan that you can't bear to see it, a baseball bat. But I get the point, which is like, why is it there? It's it's undoubtedly somewhere else. (laughs) You know, I think it's really interesting. I, I, your point about putting up a little pop-up screen or pop-up message on the screen, I think goes a very long way. I think that's, that's the way to do it. And I have this conversation increasingly with 
friends who work in um, digital media. You know, Jason and I both have a lot of experience in digital media. And we talked, uh, my friends and I, about, you know, who the biggest competitors were. And my friends who work at, you know, anywhere from Vox to BuzzFeed to The Times to WAPO, wherever they are, they kind of cite each other as, as you know, their biggest competitors. And or Conde. And I remember thinking, no, your biggest competitor is the push notification. It's the thing that's like, oh, well, I'm just going to do this really quickly. And I'm going to go over here and look at it. And if I'm ESPN, I imagine there's like a part of me that's like, oh, well, we don't want to necessarily lose the audience to this push notification of this thing is happening over here. And if you if you change the station, you can go watch it, even though that's inevitably what's going to happen. And I think this gets into what you're kind of talking about, Jason, as well is the you know, the frustration with all the different fracturing and being out of market or in market or trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I go to watch this thing as it's going to happen instead of relying on a clip on on Twitter or whatever it might be. And everyone's competing for eyeballs. And with ESPN, you know, when there's still ads and there's still other factors in, like the the need is to hold those eyeballs. So I, I imagine for them, Kind of doing the cutaways and, and giving updates constantly on Aaron Judge is a way to hold audiences captive. I will say I'm held captive because I tend to watch college sports at a bar because I am a truly terrible human. <laughs> and so it is the only thing that's on. So there is no way to kind of go okay, somewhere else and fair. watch the baseball or whatever. But um yeah, I was thinking about that. And I was like, I wonder how much of it is like, well, we know that this is what people want. We don't want to lose the audience. We assume there's probably some overlap, according to our data, in the interest between people who watch college football mm-hmm. and are interested in even if it's not baseball, just kind of watch, you know, being sports in, this, in general, this one, mo- this one moment. Yeah. And I'm, um, I'm sure that was yeah. the argument at ESPN, right? Is that it's more yeah. of this kind of overarching ecumenical, like, but we are also interested in sports in general. And this right. is a momentous moment. Right. And so we should we should cover it somewhere. And I, I get that argument. It just struck me that we're we're headed for a play. It, it, it is maybe relevant today, but it seems like it's a, a vestige of a an era that is going to fade away as everything gets more and more narrow casted but perhaps yes. if there's anywhere where you would expect to see a drop in like that and it wasn't like they covered up i think they, they split screened it um if there's anywhere that you would do that it would probably be on espn prime yeah. right like this yes. is the de- if there's a definitive sports anything it's espn one essentially can can i air one last sports corner grievance yes. since i since Let's i missed sports corner yeah I, okay, we are in so it. i I was at uh, – inter- also speaking of places where you're held captive, I was on the TV. I was at the gym because now it's getting too cold to run in New York. And so I'm on the treadmill and I'm watching – I tend to put myself in between CNN and um, either ESPN or the NFL Network, depending on what they have on. Mm-hmm. And so it was the NFL Network and it was CNN. And I'm watching and part of me – you know, it's early in the morning. I'm in brain fog and I was like – the Bengals are playing the Dolphins again? I was like, this just happened. Like, like total brain fog. Oh. And then I'm like, oh, NFL Network is replaying the game. Like, they're just replaying this. And I had this moment of like, this is something that, you know, this is, you know, it's on, it's it's, uh, it's its own channel. Of course, they do this on NFL Plus as well. So you can rewatch games. Like, it's a big part of what you're doing. But I was like, man, do we really need to watch the Tua hit again? I was like, I don't know oh, yeah. if... Like we, this is something I would necessarily want to watch in a re-airing. Like it was really disturbing when I was watching it. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, a, a football player got hit, and when he landed, it's his. There was just a, it seemed like he suffered some some head injury, some pretty severe bra- head injury. It was definitely a brain injury, and he had had a concussion yeah. the previous week that they had waved off, and he should not have even been playing. And then he had this very severe. You could see the the sort of like brain injury symptoms yes. in his in his kind of contortions of his hands. It was pretty awful. Ex- 
Exactly. And so I was sitting there or running there and I was kind of thinking, you know, we're at this point where a big part of why people watch me on the NFL Network or they watch me on NFL Plus is because it's it feels curated, right? It's not just the live game, which we watch on other networks. It's like, oh, this is a curated thing for true fans or, or for or for big fans, whatever it might be. And a lot of that time to acknowledge it, yes, it is like replays of games that you either miss or you just wanted to watch again. But I just thought... Man, we're at this point where there's so much you can do with it. There's so much programming you can do. You can pull from the internet. You can do other things. Like we have all these programs. Like Yes Network half the time is just three people talking in a room for six hours. And it's great. And I'm like, I just wish that they had gone another route than replaying that game. And I was thinking about it because I was thinking about programming on sports networks and how that has changed over the last decade. And usually it's for the better. But I feel like lately – like that really was just like, man, I really don't want to watch this at eight in the morning. And if I could have gotten off the treadmill, I would have, but it was busy. Yeah. <laughs> so I was stuck there. All right. Um, good sports corner. Sports corner comes at you fast sometimes. It just <laughs> happens right in the middle of the intro and we just go with it because that's how it goes. Okay. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff that left over from uh, the show we didn't do, but there are a couple items that I wanted to get to before that, including one that was sort of new today, which is some stuff coming out of NBC. Um, and so first off, you know, NBC... Uh, executive saying the Peacock has about 15 million subscribers. And I, I saw you comment on this and a uh, friend of the podcast, Joe Adalian at Vulture uh, was commenting on your, t- your tweets and this was Joe's take. And I want to know what your take is. Joe's take is even after cutting the price to under $2 a month for a year, moving shows off of Hulu and NBC, Peacock will have added a net 2 million subscribers over the last six months. That's not really something to brag about when you're starting from such a small base. Peacock started the year at 9 million subs. It's had the Olympics, the Super Bowl, endless promotion from NBC, clawed back that NBC content from Hulu, put biggish movies on Peacock first or soon after theaters, and it will still end 2022 under 20 million. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the, the state of Peacock given this uh, number? I think what I said on, on Twitter was that it's disappointing because it, they're starting at a place of with 13 million, right? So to add additional context, Jeff Shell, who was on the CNBC and uh, did the CNBC sit down with uh, David Faber on CNBC, which of course Jeff Shell's company owns, NBC Universal. Mm. Um, you know, he said we have 60 million, I believe was the number. Um, please feel free to fact check me on that, listeners. But uh, 60 million active accounts kind of watching this. And I imagine that includes everything from Comcast subscribers who have access to or com- customers rather have access to Peacock as well as the free accounts, people who are watching the totally ad-supported free. And so what he was saying was because of this, our average ARPU is $10 per customer, which is pretty good compared to the, the cost of, of the plans. And a lot of that is advertising. You know, they have they, – they sold out their upfront when they were doing advertising um, last year, I believe, or earlier this year, and that which means they had a bunch of advertising come to Peacock. Um, there, he said sports is driving a lot of usage, which I totally uh, agree with. I, I, we can we can absolutely see that. So there's this question of how big is the SVOD component? You know, is this a massive component for NBC Universal? Now, from what I imagine, based on the decisions that have been made, that I can kind of see when I'm reading the trades or when I'm just looking at a Twitter, smart people on Twitter, and, and hearing what the executives are saying, there seems to be this 
push into SVOD more so than the AVOD, right? There's this idea that we really want to lean on the SVOD growth on Peacock, which would be that $10 premium plus tier um, that is a similar, you know, to a Disney plus or Netflix, whatever it might be, which is why I thought it was interesting that Jeff Shell leaned so heavy on, well, our advertisement supported version of this is doing really well. And we're seeing active uh, engagement and we're really happy with that. And engagement is important because advertising is a key component of this platform. But everything publicly suggests that they want to push more towards SVOD, everything from pulling a lot of stuff from Hulu, bringing it exclusively to um to Peacock, right? Like that suggests they want people to sign up for Peacock exclusively and go watch things there. And they put it in the premium plus tier, like a Saturday Night Live or whatever it might be. And so I think when you add all in, add in all that context, that 2 million subscriber growth over one quarter, now granted is higher than, let's say, Netflix, which lost a million <laughs> subscribers, but is not anywhere close to a Disney Plus. Although, you know, Disney Plus in the last quarter, I think only added like 2.5 or 3 million subscribers domestically. Like I think, I, I think. I'm turning myself in circles. I'm like going, I'm like playing devil's advocate with myself. But <laughs> I think the, the the bottom line is that if it was starting at a place of like 45 million subscribers in the US and they only gained 2 million, it would be like, oh, okay, well, that's pretty on par with everyone else. You know, that's what, H, that's what uh, HBO Max is kind of seeing. It's what Disney Plus is seeing. It's you know, that's on par. But it's coming from a place of 13 million. It's so far behind its competitors that you kind of want to see, you know, that three, four, five million subscriber growth in a quarter. So we have to remember in the last quarter, they were stagnant. They stayed at 13 million. There was no real additions. We also don't know how many of those, like, was there maybe 500,000 additions and they just didn't report? Like, we don't know. So they're saying at this quarter, they added 2 million. But when you add in the fact that they were basically giving away for free, the content has only gotten better because they're pulling a lot of stuff off Hulu. The next day stuff is better. There's this real argument that, well, no one's really paying for Peacock. That that perceived value is still pretty low. And if they are, they're watching it as, as a free version. And I think that's, the struggle it's is this an advertisement supported platform in which case it's performing pretty decently or is this an svod platform like a netflix a disney plus and hbo max and if that's the case it's not performing very well and we don't know what that's going to look like as they expand internationally or whatever it is they might do and so i think it is disappointing i think there's a lot of asterisks with peacock that we really as an industry need to be better about because everyone looks at it like a netflix and it is inherently not it is closer to what hulu was five six seven years ago but it's still a disappointing number right that's a lot of i mean that's good like it's a complex situation right um but it's not a great number (laughs) that's the i mean like obviously nbc has tried very hard to push peacock and the growth is not particularly fast in an era where they're you know it is it's a highly competitive era right and i I think all it it is fair to say that a lot of us who look at this are also sort of like wanting to see who the laggards are who's being left behind um because there's drama in that and you know in the end the drama doesn't matter it's what works for the for the business model which i think is uh, part of your point it's 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 uh you know what does nbc see as a success here but it is it, it, these are i mean it's it's still a tough number that because as joe pointed out joe dalian um they had a lot of opportunities to push people to peacock this year and they they pushed some but it wasn't you know necessarily what you would have hoped for i would think well and this is the issue that exists with peacock and i mentioned this on twitter there's way too much reliance even the way that Jeff Shell was talking about today, there's way too much reliance on library. 
there's way too much like if you want to watch you know your favorite show yeah, you come to peacock and so there's so they're trying to be like oh well at, you know if we think about what's a really big driver on peacock something like snl should be obviously the biggest driver is sports and 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 jeff shall point that out very very well it's it's 100 percent football and all the and um the world cup is going to be a big thing for them but the bigger issue with relying on seasonal big ticket items think about the world cup or the olympics which are like maybe a month and change is that after that you are going to fight really hard to 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 keep those customers and if your churn rate is pretty high which it is according to um, data from antenna which is a great company that looks at kind of customer acquisition and and churn um specifically peacock's got high churn which means that yeah you're bringing people in for these things but people are not seeing the value and staying afterwards versus if you look at something like a disney plus or even a netflix the churn is relatively low people are coming in for the big ticket item for the gray man for the new marvel show and then they're staying right there's that interest that's like okay cool i there's there's a lot here that i want to watch so if you're saying we have the office and we have all these other library titles that's great but you're not necessarily keeping the customers who are coming in for sports or whatever it might be and i also think when we look at Peacock specifically, Jeff Shell pointed out that they're really committed to theatrical, which Universal has said in the past. And he pointed out, you know, when Jurassic World and the new Minions movie and the Black Phone all went to Peacock, there was a nice big bump in engagement, but those movies made a lot of money in theaters. And so they're very happy with that. And I think that's a really interesting point. I think Peacock can be this home that like slowly builds subscribers on that kind of new theatrical film heading to theater, heading to Peacock within 45 days. And then it being this place where there's that big jump and spikes. But again, like Peacock, the bigger concern is not that it's, you know, growing at a slower rate. And like, we we know why that's happening, right? There's no big dramas that are bringing people in. There's no massive year round, uh, a constant string of hits that keep people around the way that Netflix and Disney Plus and even HBO Max have, thanks to HBO. Paramount Plus is about to have, thanks to Showtime, right? They don't have any of that. So they're saying, well, we have these seasonal things. We have this, we have SNL, we have sports, and we're hoping that there's enough overlap on the library side that people stay. And instead, they have a really high decay rate in their customer. There's there's a high churn rate. Or those customers are going down to the free level, which again, going back to what I was saying, if that is the strategy, if it is to rely on the ad side, that's great. Your engagement is high. But it doesn't seem like it is anymore. Yeah. By the way, Jeff Shell is the uh, the name that uh, I, I think I've been called that more than once. P- people get my name wrong. That's Jeff <laughs> Shell is right there. It's so close. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, another piece of uh, interesting news in the last couple of weeks was the announcement that Epix is becoming MGM Plus as a part of the uh, transition where MGM is owned by Amazon. Um which on one level, I'm like, you know, nobody even knew what Epics was. Sometimes there were mm-hmm. interesting shows on Epics and and people be like, what? What is Epics? And the answer is, uh, OK, fine. Let me explain. Um, so MGM Plus, hey, it's another name. But what is an interesting move is that MGM Plus is OK. It's a standalone service that will be available as an Amazon channel inside Prime Video. Uh, which is not, I think, what most people expected, rightly or wrongly, that they they figured that this might roll into Prime Video or that Prime members would get access to it for free or for cheap or something like that as part of building an overall strategy. Doesn't seem like that that like that is going to happen. So what's going on with MGM Plus? Yeah, I think that was probably one of the best rundowns too of what 
of what this is. Uh, you know, and also one day, Jason, we're going to have to rank the pluses. We're just going to have to dedicate oh, a show. Totally, totally to it. P- Pennyworth, by the way, is the show I was thinking of. That's the show that people that actually um, Tim Goodman liked. The, it's the what if, uh, you know, Batman's butler, like when he was young, was a uh, uh, tough tough uh, action man and uh but it was on epics and you'd say oh pennyworth oh that sounds interesting where is it it's epics what huh and so this is this is where we are now mgm plus <laughs> yeah and so um it really is just a case of rebranding on linear right it is this ability to say well mgm has more of a brand identity than epics does which you could argue was the you know paramount plus moving on from cbs all access right that kind of like well what has the better brand identity and does this really work and the plus really leans into this idea of it's similar to all these other pluses that you've heard about this is a way to get some really good content to your point about um pennyworth like here's where you go to get it my Bigger, so so we we also have to break this down into two conversations because one is a conversation about linear because this is a linear channel that yes. is kind of rebranding and it's going through this whole weird. Right, believe you know, it or not, it's on your cable. <laughs> exactly, yeah. This like adolescence <laughs> awkward phase where it's trying to be you know a streaming thing, but it's not. So it's adding the plus. And so right. on the one hand, there's that, and I I would argue that no one who has cable is going to care about this. Like maybe you get a few additional signups, but they're not going to care. My bigger question is like, how does this fit within Amazon? So Amazon owns MGM. Amazon's whole thing was like, we're going to make reboots on MGM titles, you know, um, uh, like I think Robocop's one of them. Like, we're like, I think that's like one of the titles they always mention is like, Oh, it's a great movie, Rocky or whatever. Um, like they're going to do additional, and like that was their whole thing. Like we want this IP, we want access to the library. It's great. So then MGM Plus, I thought might just be a part of Amazon Prime Video. You pay for it and it's there, and then you can go and watch stuff. But it's not. You according to everyone who I've asked about this because I no longer report, so I, I didn't have anyone really ask about this. So I was asking journalists, I was asking friend of the show Joe and others. Uh, I was like. It, well, on Amazon Prime, is it just MGM, but maybe they put like a little plus sign and it's like, you know, it's part of MGM plus, but you get it as Prime Video. You do not. It is a channel as as it would be HBO or as it would be the uh, Nickelodeon or whatever it might be. You can go pay like six bucks and you get MGM plus. And I just think like that's such a – everything that comes down to Prime Video, just like the word is bizarre because I'm like you have – MGM, you're you're literally marketing this huge hub of like Prime Video gets you MGM content, like it's a big part of the. We we're, we're betting a nine billion dollars on this, and then when people look up MGM, there's going to be this MGM Plus thing, which might have shows like Pennyworth or or whatever it might be, and they're going to go to click on it, and then it's going to cost an additional six dollars or whatever it costs, and I just think. So now within Amazon Prime Video is this other streaming service that's an add-on called MGM Plus. It's a channel add-on, but it's not really. And then you're going to go watch your – it's just so confusing. And I think I, on Twitter, awarded the entire thing as now being king of the most confusing rollout, taking that crown away from when HBO Sunset, HBO Go, and then HBO Now became like HBO Max. And Mm -hmm. they were like trying to figure out how to like get that communication across, which no one cared about anymore. But – and this is true about MGM Plus. In three months, nobody will care about the fact that it's rebranded. People will just get to know what it is. And I think we always make a bigger deal out of branding than it really needs to be. People get used to it. But I'm just like the concept of that UI experience within Amazon, which is already an issue of like, here's our MGM hub. 
here's shows on MGM Plus that you might be interested in, but you have to pay extra for this on top of your Prime Video thing. But don't worry, all those MGM things are going to be rebooted as Amazon Prime Video Originals. It's just like a weird moment for the, the, the two companies. And it's like a weird clashing of, of brands, which is a notable thing within Amazon to begin with. Um, so yeah, I think I just am like bewildered by its existence. Yeah. And I, I mean, you mentioned the linear aspect of it. I, I always, my spider sense always goes to the fact that I wonder if there's some sort of contractual thing where, they can offer it as an over the top channel, but putting it on, you know, basically for for free for Prime is something that they're limited to based on their deals with with cable providers. But you would think that I don't know it, it it's it's a strange situation, and I mean, I guess maybe they just want to experiment with this business model, but um, it it seems like an oddball thing, and it actually makes me think. Uh, oh, the strategy here is just to sort of like keep that linear channel around, but yeah. um, not feed it and feed Prime Video for all future things until it just fades away. I think that's 100% right. And and we should also note that when Amazon acquired MGM, Amazon's executives uh, on the Prime Video side explicitly said, like, we are not getting involved in any decision Epics would do. Like, that is Epics. Like, they are right. their own company. MGM as a theatrical business is kind of its own company. Like, they're going to do their thing. Amazon's focused on the Prime Video side and how they integrate library, how they potentially do remakes, reboots, how they use that IP. But I think you're 100% right, Jason. It's like we're, we don't want to get involved in messing around with this. We also may be able to sign up 300, 400,000 people via this channel that on Amazon because of the MGM connection. Great. Like we're going right. to make some additional money off that. That sounds good. But we're not going to invest in this the way we are going to invest in original content that comes from MGM ownership. Right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Um, I wanted to do a House of the Dragon check-in, hot D check-in. Um, last time I checked, demand didn't seem to be waning and the ratings keep creeping up and it sounds like they're going to make this thing work, at least so far. What do you think? Yeah, I actually was just talking to Matt Bellany about this on his podcast, mm. um, The Town, which is a great podcast. Um, I would say ours is just as good, if not <laughs> even slightly better. But very, uh, <laughs> very, very well done. I'll put a link but, in the uh, show uh, notes to the town over at the yeah, Reddit. good uh, podcast. It is a very good podcast. Um, but we were talking about this exact thing, and and we it was a mid season check in, right? It was kind of like okay, we, they I think they each have five to six episodes out, maybe four to six, five to seven episodes out. How are they doing? And across the board, across the board, House of the Dragon is outperforming Rings of Power now. In terms of what that means, we finally got some Nielsen data from Rings of Power. I believe off the top of my head, it was 1.25 billion minutes viewed for the first two episodes, where if we break that down into completed views, this is where we put the big asterisks. There's no way to say, like, this is the equivalent to one-to-one, -one because some per people might have watched one episode, then walked away. Some people might have watched both twice. So what we do um, in the industry as analysts is break down to completed views. It's like, Take the number of minutes, divide it by the runtime of both those episodes, and here's how many people I, m might have watched it. And so I think it came out to like 9.5 million people watched 
those first two episodes over the course of the first four days, um, which Amazon, I believe, when the show came out, said it was like 25 million, which we call this uh, a datecdote. Is my friend um, who goes by Entertainment Strategy Guy on Twitter, he coined that term and I love it. A datecdote is kind of like an anecdote <laughs> that, that companies give out as a form of data. They're like, yeah, 25. Actually, a great one just happened with Hocus Pocus 2. Disney said it was like the number one most watched movie on Disney Plus over a 72 hour period. No one knows what that means. <laughs> can't can't prove it. But anyways, so, you know, we, we have this number. If we compare that 9.5 million, we know that through a combination of Nielsen and HBO Max data, it was 9.9, close to 10 million viewers within 24 hours for the first episode of House of the Dragon. So that kind of sets the, 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 the pace, right? Also, the other number I want to throw in there, it's really important. Wheel of Time, I think, came in at like 1.19 billion minutes for the first three episodes. And The Boys, I think, did, did just under a billion for its season two or season three premiere um, for three episodes. Now, those technically performed worse than Rings of Power, but they cost about a tenth of what rings of power costs. And so the question with all this rating stuff, right? Like when we talk about ratings, ratings are both an antiquated form of talking about something. We're talking about engagement. Um, obviously, I like to use demand. I work for Parrot Analytics. Demand captures everything from in- consumption, which is viewership and engagement, to actual um, social media, to Google search, to everything, just to kind of create a holistic view of like the the attention economy is the idea of like how does this actually performing in 2022 ratings feel feel very 1999 to me but they're very important still they're very important and so when we kind of take all this into context the question that ratings brings up that i think other companies are better poised to answer is what does this mean for amazon in terms of success did this show succeed for what they're trying to do. And the question we can't really answer until we see the end of the season, because we're really curious about the decay rate. We're curious about whether that that demand alongside that one-to-one viewership really starts to fade away. Um, we know that they're, they'll are they probably build up around season, uh, excuse me, around episode five, six, seven into the finale. It's just how shows are designed. They get into some big reveal. And so there's immediate interest. But with House of the Dragon, we're seeing much less decay. We're actually seeing, you know, kind of a, a nice improval rate episode, ep- episode after episode. Um, and we're seeing this really strengthen the Game of Thrones viewership. We're seeing this really strengthen HBO Max engagement in general. So for HBO Max, that $220 million show uh, has really generated pretty strong engagement and therefore sets it up for much stronger potential return in the year if we look over the course of a year. You know, Amazon spends $550 million over the course of, you know, three, four seasons. So you amortize it and you get down to what it might be. It's it's not, you know, even when you put that in, the question is, okay, well, of the people who sign up for Amazon Prime Video, which is a huge driver of Amazon Prime uh, success outside of the United States, where e-commerce is much less of a culture. Um, how many of those customers are then staying with uh, Amazon? You know, how many of them are watching MGM stuff, right? Like how many of them are watching other titles on Amazon and engaging with it? How many people are buying stuff on Amazon? That decay rate in viewership may coincide as we uh, um, ha- as we tend to hypothesize that the decay rate in viewership is equivalent to the decay rate in engagement overall with the product. And that would lead to customer churn and, or just reduced engagement on shopping and ads. So all of which is to say with these numbers that we have across the viewership ratings, across the demand, across Google, across social house of the dragon, definitely outperforming, not by a huge amount. I would, I, I would say, I think entertainment strategy guy and I have debated this. I, he thinks he, I think he thinks 
or sorry, he thinks it's much bigger than I do. Um, he's incredibly smart. I would like to think I'm decently smart. So I think both the points are valid, but we both agree that House of the Dragon is definitely out performing rings of power that may change in the coming weeks and we will check in on this in like three to four months and we'll see you know what's really happening with those shows demand wise and that and that decay rate and that churn rate but for now i would crown house of the dragon the winner in this never-ending battle between the two shows all right we'll keep our eye on it and they are you know and obviously they're playing different games because amazon's playing and playing a different game too and the shows are actually really different for saying they're both fantasy shows i think they're very different texturally structurally what they're trying to do um but but fascinating i don't know if i would have predicted that house of the dragon would have been this solid um going in but it is and i'm still watching it so there i i I, i'm watching both of them so that's fine i love that um all right let's move on uh really quickly to a uh, an item uh that you actually wrote about on uh, puck about uh, Apple and Luck, the movie from Skydance that they um, that they bought and put on, and and this is again, this is a theme in what we always talk about here, but it's a little bit of a conundrum. It's uh, not a huge amount of viewership of that movie in the grand scheme of things, and yet also it's the best performing Apple Kids content ever. And Apple's strategy is not the same strategy everybody else has. So I guess the question ultimately is. How do we judge the success or failure of luck? And is the right way to do it, you know, does it fulfill Apple's long-term strategy or is it, you know, well, we're disappointed that it didn't get more viewers? Right. I mean, and this kind of carries on from the Rings of Power discussion, but yeah. it's, it's exactly that, right? Every ratings conversation now, and it was the same then as, you know, does this constitute a success for the distributor, for the producer, for the production company, the creative, whoever it might be? It was easier 25 years ago because it was a lot of, you know, the exception of a few premium cable channels like an HBO, which drove everything by subscribers uh, and relied heavily on movie deals like from Universal uh, to really help bring people in alongside original programming. It was for advertisers, right? As long as the advertisers were happy, that show ran. <laughs> as long as the creators were happy, you know, Big Bang Theory can run 10 years because it's still gaining and, and Walking Dead can run for 12 years or whatever, however long it ran because it's still bringing in huge, huge audiences and the advertisers are happy and that show makes a ton of money for those networks. Now, you know, with luck, it's this question of, okay, well, how many people watched luck one? Okay. But beyond that, is luck the type of movie that then brings people into Apple TV plus? And then beyond that, is there enough within Apple TV plus to really build upon the bump in demand that luck may have seen um, to really create a ongoing subscriber pool for Apple TV Plus. And then beyond that, of course, is the bigger overarching question about Apple's strategy designs on kids. You know, this this question about if Apple really wants to be a key player in the kids space, the way that Netflix is, and the way that, of course, that Disney and Nickelodeon are, and Disney, but Nickelodeon being paramount, takes a lot of money, takes a lot of investment, takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of... um yeah, I guess investment's the key word in really building that out. It's why Warner Brothers Discovery walked away from it, right? Like kids for them was went from being a big gain on relatively small pain to being a big pain on relatively small gain for HBO Max. And so they walked away for now. I, I, I believe they'll go back to it eventually. Um, and be, partially because 
you know, Netflix and Disney are in that space really well. Apple is kind of coming into that space. And beyond that, of course, there's this giant, big three-headed monster named YouTube who's just eating up everyone's attention, all these kids' attention. And so I think, you know, with luck, which is a really interesting story, um, and, and it was fun to kind of report that out because I haven't reported in so long. But with luck, everything pointed to this being a success for Apple and 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 it being part of, you know, this was the first project from John Lasseter's uh, or from what John Lasseter was overseeing at Skydance. And he, of course, was ousted from Pixar. I believe he left on his own terms, but there was a controversy around him yeah. and some sexual misconduct, um, I believe, is the word for it. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of got him attached to it. The the production company, Skydance, is great. The, the creative team is, is very good. And so they found this way in to really create something of note um, on a platform that does not have as many subscribers as, as its competitors. And, and in a space that is increasingly hard, you know, if let's say kids make up and preschoolers really make up four to six percent of your total audience base, that's an overly saturated market for a very small percentage of eyeballs. And to be able to even compete in it is really impressive. Of course, Apple can do this because Apple can spend as much money as it wants without much worry about anything. Um, but we are getting to a point where I think Apple TV Plus is looking to not just be an accolade uh, part of Apple, which it which it has very much accomplished, but to be a part that drives, you know, meaningful revenue. And, and I don't know how much it has done that for the Apple, you know, services as a whole, um, which is constantly reporting great increases. Right. But they don't go down into the details, right? That's the trick there. Right. Yeah. So we don't know what TV Plus did versus Fitness Plus versus News Plus versus Arcade. And so I would say, though, that luck was the type of thing, the type of movie, the type of content that really, I think, can define Apple TV Plus as, as a success because it brought in or based on what I could kind of see, I assume it brought in subscribers based on the, my research that I did, based on my understanding. It brought in I assume it brought in subscribers. It did well viewership wise. There was, it was pretty, it was pretty good. There were kids that were watching it. There were kids that were rewatching it. It was very sticky, which is very important. That's kind of what Disney has going for it in Nickelodeon Netflix. So it had that mm-hmm. going for it. And it was also well received. Like, like, like it was good reviews. And I think for Apple, beyond anything else, the worst thing that could happen for Apple was, is that quality gets overtaken by quantity. And then all of a sudden Apple is associated with a brand that they, is is counterintuitive to what they've spent the last few decades building, right? This this idea of like sexy machinery that is quality, that is like everything you're getting from Apple is a quality product. It's refined. And I think that's what they want their Apple TV Plus system to be more than anything else, which is why the Emmys are such a big deal from the Oscars and the Golden Globes. Like it's that moment of like, yes, well, we can build quality television like HBO has done, build quality films like A24 has done, and we're going to really be in that space. And Luck was the first one that, or not first, but one of the major first ones that was both a success in terms of viewership and in finding an audience, but also fitting within that Apple brand. All right. Um, we'll keep an eye on it. It's Apple Again, the theme of this podcast, Apple and Amazon playing different uh, different games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try to yeah. figure out what the games are, what the rules are, and whether they're succeeding or failing, if they'll even say anything about it, which they probably won't. It's really interesting. What's your... Jason, what's your take? Because you're you're the Apple guy. What's your take I, on TV Plus so far? I mean, I think it has done everything that they've wanted it to do. In that they've it's first thing was making it seem that it was legitimate because people were like, 
you know, carpool karaoke or whatever. So the, <laughs> that app uh, reality show. And they're like, no, no, they hired they hired the guys from Sony. Uh, is this going to be legit? And everybody's like, oh, I don't even think about like Apple and TV content. That doesn't make sense. There were lots of conversations about it. I feel like so step one was make it so that it doesn't seem weird that Apple has a channel <laughs> and and then get some build up some reputation so that Apple can say it fits our quality standards. And they've done that. They had a best, best picture Oscar. They've got successive uh, Emmys for best comedy series. Right. They're in the they're in the mix uh, in terms of the awards and prestige, and that's good not only for their their uh, talent relationships, but also for their kind of overall brand. Like they want they want to be taken seriously. Like this is not a joke that hurts Apple and it, it and its image. And they've gotten that, to that point. Um, in terms of the sheer numbers of like is is TV Plus um, accumulating subscribers or is it adding stickiness to the bundle, the Apple One bundle? Um, and they're experimenting with some other stuff. So like they've got to deal with T-Mobile where T-Mobile subscribers get Apple TV Plus and it's bundled into T-Mobile. Um, I feel like it's pretty opaque because Apple doesn't want to do anything in detail about their services. They talk about TV plus mostly about the accolades and not about milestones that they're hitting. Yeah. I feel like though, the truth is Apple. I mean, we say it about Amazon. I think it's definitely true about Apple. Like Apple's playing a long game here. Apple really just wants to keep accumulating reasons to get into the Apple ecosystem. And yeah. baseball, when we talked in sports corner about Apple TV on base with the, the baseball deal, even though it was free, I really believe that one of Apple's, uh, plans in terms of their sports deals and, you know, the, the present and future is they want more people to do the work that is required to get in a place where they can watch that content. Because once they're there, they're a targetable a potential audience for Apple. Like somebody without a streaming box or who hasn't set up streaming is not really reachable, right? You've got to motivate them to get over that hump. And right. there are, there's a huge audience out there of people who who still, believe it or not, they're not listening to this podcast, aren't streaming um, or are doing it comfortably or don't or have never installed the Apple TV app, which is probably available on their box. It's not everywhere, but it's increasingly available on streaming yeah. boxes and TVs. So on one level, I think the game they're playing is really to just keep accumulating value and content so that the more times you keep getting hit with, oh, you need to watch that baseball game on Apple or did you hear about Ted Lasso or did you see about this movie that just won Best Picture? The answer answer is, oh, I guess I really need to set up Apple. And once you're set up, even if it's free, once you're set up and logged in, then you're in the ecosystem and that's then they can start selling you other things. So I think I think they're still yeah. playing that game and they can afford to play that game for a long yes. time. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. Also, Jason, I think that's a very good point that we should be trying to reach non-streamers. I think that's how we convert them. We just, we get them on, we listen to this podcast. Yeah. Oh, that's good. You listen here first. And then I don't know. I don't know how many non-streamers are, uh, are, are not listening or are listening to podcasts, right? That's a weird overlap, but maybe. Oh, yeah. Maybe some. We should, we should get that. Well, you know, what? we'll Google survey it. We'll, we'll, we'll pay the, what is it? $200 to do a Google survey. I don't, yeah. We'll I send mean, it out. Are they going to show up on a Google survey? I don't know that either. <laughs> 
Um, all right, let's <laughs> let's move on. I, I really quickly, we've been talking a lot about the lack of stats and how it's uh, in in uh, in streaming and how we have the different kinds of stats as you talked about, like how do you define it and what is it and all of that, and that so much of it is ch- it used to be all public in the Nielsen ratings and now it's all a trade secret. And one of the points that you've been making uh, throughout our run here has been that this is also bad for talent. It's bad for agents because they can't. How do how do they show their worth and the success that they've had? Uh, on shows or movies that they start in or that uh, for for showrunners, the the shows they've created uh, that were smash hits, how do they prove that with numbers when they're trying to negotiate a deal with somebody uh, and, and get paid what they're actually worth if nobody knows what they're actually worth? And so you posted a tweet a couple weeks ago. I just wanted to, to mention it because it's, it's pretty cool. Um, your employer, Parrot, has made a deal with a top entertainment law firm to bring Parrot's data into the conversation when they're negotiating between talent and the streamers or networks or studios. Um, I, I love this idea. I don't know what you can say about it, but it goes to, you're probably thinking about it while you were talking about it, but it, it goes to the idea that you need some data to back up like your negotiation. If you're somebody who's trying to uh, your talent basically, and you're trying to make a deal with a studio. Yeah. Thank, well, thank you for bringing it up. That's very kind of you. I uh, won't spend too much time on it. I will say there's much more they'll be able to say, not on the next podcast, but the podcast oh, after right. that. Oh, yeah, forward some, promotion. Some exciting I love stuff. it. Some, some we're playing the long game around. here, too. That's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a, a real red wedding moment. But uh, JK, oh, we're, no. we're absolutely not. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I can talk more about it in, in a month when the that, that podcast comes out. But what I will say is very, very excited to partner with Jordan Levine. Um, this is something that we have been building toward. We really, a big part of what we do, you know, we launched this, We I was not a part of it. My my team and my boss launched this company um, more than a decade ago. And what started as a way to kind of just understand, you know, they're all data scientists. They're all scientists. That's where they come from. To, but to better understand how people's consumption behavior was affecting the business of Hollywood and how the business of Hollywood was then impacting consumption behavior has now become this really prolific and exciting moment to talk about the business of how people are getting paid and how deals are being made and and, and the finance of, of the business side of the equation in Hollywood, which has become a notable part of, of the industry in ways that it was, you know, not necessarily in front of conversation 20, 30 years ago. It was always there, but now it feels very fundamentally a, uh, like a conversation that people are having at different levels. And so to be working with Joran Levine, to be um, working with them on certain projects uh, with certain clients um, and being able to help them out uh, or not even just help out, but to maybe illuminate something where they're not getting data from the studios or the networks of the streamers is part of our overarching goal. And of course, we work with the streamers as well. And we work with studios and networks and they have different requests for what they want to do. And the goal really is just to provide data um, to to teams and to individuals and to companies at a time when that data is both ironically increasingly being relied on by many of these companies, but um, extremely difficult to access or to uh, assuage. And so, yeah, that's kind of uh, what it is. But more more in a month. We'll be able to speak about more things okay. in a month. Got it. Yeah. All right. Um, we are getting toward the end, but I want to wrap it up with a letter. And the, I, I promise this is, this is our Canadian letter. It's a good one. It's from uh, listener Morgan, uh, who writes... 
Uh, I was sad to hear that Julia was under the weather, but I was delighted by the conversation about the eccentricities of the Canadian media landscape. I thought you might appreciate some additional context. There is an exception in Canadian copyright law that permits cable and satellite providers to retransmit American TV signals to their subscribers. Because of this, it's common for Canadians to have access to at least one and sometimes multiple affiliates of the big U.S. networks. Jason, aside here, every time I've been in a hotel room in Canada, yes, you have absolutely (laughs) been able to get American TV. This creates a problem, Morgan says. Why would a Canadian TV network pay for the rights to broadcast an American program if people have the option of watching it on a U.S. channel instead? The solution is something called SimSub, simultaneous substitution. If a Canadian TV station is showing the same program as the same time as a U.S. channel, they can request that the U.S. channel signal be temporarily replaced by their own, including all of their ads on cable and satellite providers. Thus, it is possible, for example, to turn on the TV, change the channel to Fox, and see a CTV broadcast. This leads Mm -hmm. to some strange quirks in the Canadian-American TV landscape. Canadian networks are effectively at the mercy of the U.S. network's programming schedules when it comes to setting their primetime lineups. They have to broadcast hot new shows at the same time as they air in the U.S. in order to sim-sub them and get the ad revenue. American stations near the border, some of which accept Canadian advertisers and whose business models depend on serving viewers in both countries, have been known to swap out programming at the last minute to dodge sim-sub. The use of SimSub that by far causes the most angst is the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, I, I watched. I think I watched a Major League Baseball playoff game, and I saw the yeah. same thing when I was in when yeah. I was in uh, Montreal. A favorite same Canadian pastime is uh, griping. Yeah, was griping about how we don't get any of the good commercials that are shown on the U.S. Super Bowl broadcast because the U.S. network's feed is replaced with the Canadian one. At least it was until 2015 when Canada's broadcast regulator decided the commercials were an integral part of the Super Bowl and that SimSub was not allowed. The NFL was not a fan of this decision since it substantially devalued the Canadian Super Bowl rights. The U.S. government actually negotiated for the reversal of this decision in free trade talks and there is specifically specific language in the new USMCA about it. Thanks for letting me nerd out. Love to your mothers. Morgan, a Canadian, now living in the 615. Great letter. Explains Great so letter. much about things I never understood when I got, went to Canada. Fantastic letter. And I feel, I mean, this is, uh, as a Canadian, and you can speak to this, but like I, uh, living in Canada, like the size of the neighbor to the south is so enormous that it distorts all sorts of things in life just because of the size. I mean, I feel this as a Californian too, that, that, uh, California size, uh, it has, it, it makes decisions and it impacts other parts of the West and other parts of the United States. But w- with Canada, the U S does things like, like this, like networks scheduling shows and the Canadian TV networks are like, all right, I guess we have to do that because there's no, like economically you, you, this is the only way that you can play the game is by using the SimSub stuff, even if it, means you can't choose your own schedule for anything yeah it's it's funny because i feel like a lot of people in canada and morgan correct me if i'm wrong please really didn't think about a lot of this stuff you would it's also really funny because you'll see it um in gifs actually on on twitter and stuff where people will tweet something like a fox show and it's got a ctv logo on it and it's very funny when that happens, um, in part because CTV just carries reruns of stuff, like they negotiate with with that or whoever it might be. But I have seen people on Twitter be like, why does this have like a C- Like, is it just because the way it's airing? And it's like, yeah, well, there's like this simulcasting thing that's happening, also licensing things that happen. Like, it's just the Canadian broadcast landscape um, is fundamentally, in my opinion, broken, uh, but also so, so underserved, um, in part because of their competing or not competing, they're, they're trying to work with the US and also compete with them. And it's, it's difficult. But I think it really comes out to play 
uh, to Morgan's exact point, during major events, like during the Super Bowl, during the Oscars, when certain trailers air, when certain commercials air, and until YouTube, right? Until like companies really started dropping stuff on YouTube right after they aired on, uh, during the Super Bowl or like right on Twitter. Um, it was really, you weren't seeing it. Like there, there was just no way. Like you'd have to wait maybe a week or two and then finally someone would upload like a really grainy version of YouTube and it was just like not great. And it's the one time when everyone's like, Hey man, like what, what's going on? And so things, uh, it's, it's funny when that griping, when Morgan noted that and I was like, yeah, I remember griping about this. Like I remember being on Facebook and being like, what? I didn't see that. Like I got this other ad and the Canadian ads are just never as good. No offense to, to Canadian advertising companies. I love Canada, obviously, uh, but they're just not as good as, as the US ones, especially during the Super Bowl. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's, Wild. This was like, I literally want to copy and paste this letter and just keep it for reference. It was so good. Thank you, Morgan. Great letter. Great letter. Somewhere out there, our editor, Stephen Schapansky, is nodding. (laughs) Now, Stephen Stephen grew up watching, it turns out, I know this, uh, PBS on the uh, TV station in Spokane, Washington. That was his PBS station. Because again, retransmission, you just take that over and put it on cable in Edmonton and nobody... We'll say a word, I guess. Exactly. Except that then Canadians make pilgrimages to the Spokane PBS station and they're like, what? What? (laughs) Why are you here? And the answer is, uh, you know, some sim sub sim sub. That's the secret word. word. Good term too. sim sub. All right. Uh, if you have a question for us, you can email us downstream at relay.fm or just send a message preceded by a question mark ask downstream in the Relay FM members discord. If you're a member at Relay, you can also tweet at us at downstream pod. Of course, love to your mothers. We love it. Uh, our director of strategy, Julia, is loudmouth Julia on Twitter and of course, parrotanalytics.com. You can also find her on Matt Bellany's podcast and you can find her at Puck News. And there's so, so many places where you can find Julia in addition to here. Uh, and you can find me at Jason on Twitter and sixcolors.com. We will be back in two weeks. But until then, Julia, say goodbye. Bye, Jason. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Bye, Julia. <laughs>